Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. We are in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be finishing up this chapter. We've been in it for about four weeks. And um, what we have seen so far as you're turning there, uh, what we've seen so far is that this is the greatest chapter in the Bible because it contains some of the greatest truth that we can hold on to in the middle of the storms of life, in the middle of the questions. Because while we know Jesus is alive and while we know our home is in heaven, there are still questions, right? Because it's still a faith. It's still a system of faith. We are looking for what we hope for. It's the evidence of things not seen, right? So faith sometimes puts us in positions where we have to hold on to anchors and just know they're true even when it looks like all around us it's not true, right? And so we saw a couple of things. That number one, this is the greatest chapter in the Bible because it offers us the greatest assurance, right? In verse number one, it says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That means zero condemnation, zero shame, zero guilt. If you know Christ, your sins are gone. Past, present, future, they're gone. That means the condemnation of your sin, the weight of your sin. That means one day when you stand before God and we all will stand before God. If your sins are under the blood of Christ, God does not see your sin. And there will be no condemnation from the righteous judge. So we can have a great assurance that once we are saved, once our sins are under the blood, we can't go bringing them back out of there. The second thing that we saw was that it offers us a great promise, right? In verse number 16, it says that we've received a spirit of adoption whereby we can cry, Abba, Father, just like a young child can cry out to its father. He loves us this much. We are promised that he has us in his hand and he is holding us for all of eternity. And that gives us a great hope, right? In verse number 28, we saw most, the greatest verse in the greatest chapter of the greatest book, right? For all things work together for, help me out, good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We know that whatever we may go through here on earth, what Satan means for evil, God can turn for good. Right? God can redeem. If he can redeem us in our sin, he can redeem the sin that we live in and he can redeem the brokenness that we live in as well for his glory and for our good. That means that whatever you're going through, the dark valley you may be in right now, God with you is the hope of glory. Christ with us is the hope of glory. And so today as we close out this greatest chapter, we see that it ends in a promise of great victory. Of great victory. So let's look this morning at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 31, as we finish out this chapter together. It says, What then are we to say about these things? He's basically saying, Take into context all of verses 1 through 28 the great hope, the great assurance, the great, uh, the great promise. What do we say to this? How do we conclude this? What does this mean for us? Because it does nothing to know good but then it doesn't mean anything for our life. And there's a lot of people today that know the good book, but it doesn't mean anything to them. It's just an academic exercise. So Paul is asking us to stop and to think, what am I to say to this? What difference does it make that God is working all things together for good? What difference does it make that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And he says this, if God is for us, then who is against us or who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything or all things? 
Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Even more, he has been raised and he is also at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Underline, circle, tattoo, whatever you need to do. Put it, on, put it, put it in a frame or crochet it on a pillow. Remember this. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'd say out of that list, if I, nakedness would probably be the one thing that challenges God's love for me a lot. Okay, um, But anyway, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, I am convinced, I am rooted and anchored in the fact that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through this word this morning, illuminate us to truth. Thank you, Jesus, for the great promise of victory that we have in this passage of Scripture. As we close out this greatest chapter of the Bible, I pray this morning you would hold us captivated by this greatest truth. May you move in us, open our hearts, our minds, our spirits. And I pray if there's somebody here who doesn't this promise, who has not received you as Savior, may they come to know you today. Somebody that's watching podcast. May they come to know you today. You be glorified. You be lifted high. Draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we in the church said, amen. amen. I want to open this morning with a real spiritual line, right? So we're ending the greatest chapter. I got to open with like a real, you know, humdinger of a line, okay, this morning, all right? And here it is. Winning is just so much better than losing, isn't it? There it is, right? That's a great spiritual truth. If you take nothing away from this service, take that away. Winning is better than losing. How many of you would agree, right? Does anybody here, by the way, but does anybody here like to lose? Like to lose? No, it's just something I do out of kindness in my heart. I just let them win so they feel good. It's a ministry that I'm invested in. Like I can tell you, I've been called to ministry, but that's not a ministry I feel like I'm called to because when I play, I don't care if it's basketball, football. I don't care if I'm in war or if I'm playing Monopoly on Friday night, family game night. I am out for blood, man. I will take you down and I will do whatever it takes to win. I've been known to cheat before. No, I haven't really. Actually, there was a trivia game that I used to play years ago. Nobody will play with me anymore because somebody lied, my brother, and said that uh, when, because I was always winning. It was this, it was this trivia game that, that when we got together with friends and stuff and played, I always won. It's because I'm a genius, guys. I don't know what else to tell you. But my brother, everybody's like, how does he know all these answers? And my brother's like, because he reads the cards at home. I'm like, no, I don't. I don't read the questions. I don't study the questions at home. He lied and everybody believes it and no one will play that game with me anymore. No one. It's ridiculous. I did all that studying for nothing. I mean, uh, whatever, anyway. So, but I am out for blood. I'm, anybody else competitive, like too competitive for your own good? You got to win at everything. How many of you are like those people who are like, you know, I just play for the fun of the game. You know, I got like 10,000 participation trophies sitting on my, my mantle at home, and it's just wonderful, right? No, no one likes to lose. And so the bad thing is, is I was planning to, and I saw what date that this was going to, you know, this, uh, this sermon was going to end on. I really was expecting that Kentucky was going to be playing in the Elite Eight tonight, and we would be talking about, or actually they would have played last night, and they would, you know, we're talking about how they were going to go to the Final Four and everything like that, and we'd been all excited about that. 
you know, because it's March Madness, and we love winning basketball games around here, but instead of this year being March Madness, it's just like March Sadness, man. It's like you lose to the, who loses to the Peacocks? Well, I mean, Murray State, Purdue, you know, possibly some other teams uh, tonight. Um, so it's like, the, the, <laughs> be afraid of the mighty peacocks. That's all I'm saying. And Doug and his like, his fuzzy caterpillar mustache. You know, that guy just took us for everything, man. Doug Eddard is a name that haunts me in my sleep right now because my brackets, I burned my brackets after the first game. That's not good, folks. That's bad, right? I don't like to lose, right? So if you're a sportsman, let me ask you this. When you're watching a game, when you're watching your team play, do you prefer, to, do you prefer for it to be a tightly contested game where it like goes down to the buzzer? Do you like the stress of all that? I, got, I wear this Apple Watch, right? And during the game the other night, it sent me an alert saying that my, my, uh, my heart rate had gotten too high. It said, you may want to slow down your workout. I'm like, I'm not working out. I'm sitting on the couch watching my team lose. My heart rate had gotten so high. I don't like that. I don't like the stress. Stacy tells me when we watch either the Bengals, the Cubs, or, or, or Kentucky football or basketball, she's like, I'll watch the game with you because I love you. But if it gets close, if they get within 10, I'm going to the other room. And I'm like, that's no fun. But you know what happens when they get close and she leaves? I'm so superstitious. I'm like, no, no, no. They were playing better with you here. Get in here, right? And then if they start playing better when she's out and she comes back, I'm like, no, stay away. You know, because that's, that's the way I go, right? Um, because winning is just so much better than losing, right? It, victory is so much better than defeat. Some people just can't seem to handle the stress of not knowing if their team is going to win. And by some people, I mean the guy that's preaching right now. I can't handle the stress. We don't like that. They'd rather not watch. They'd rather not endure the agony of not knowing if their team was going to win. And that leads me to this next thought. Wouldn't life be so much better if winning was never in doubt? Wouldn't life be so much less stressful if failure was never an option? It'd be great, wouldn't it? Let me rephrase that question in light of the text that we're looking at this morning and the fact that we are in church and what we're looking at in Romans chapter 8. How much stronger would your faith be if there was never any reason to doubt it? How much stronger would our faith be? How much more fun would church be? How much more, let me ask you this, how much more popular do you think church and faith and Christianity would be if there was rock solid, no arguing with proof of everything that we preach here every single Sunday? How much stronger would your faith be if there was never any reason to doubt, if there was always proof to everything you put your faith in? Well, your faith wouldn't be strong at all because it wouldn't be faith anymore. Faith that is seen is not faith anymore. It's, it's proof, right? How much stronger would our faith be if our questions of faith never popped into our mind, if our struggles never seemed to happen? How much, how much stronger would my faith be if following Jesus was the easiest thing that I ever did? And if temptation never reared its head, and how much easier would my faith be or stronger would my faith be if suffering wasn't part of the Christian experience? If that were the case, everybody would be spiritual giants and everybody would want to be a Christian, right? Because if Christianity was the better option, the easier road, everybody would want to jump off on that or jump to that, right? But Jesus said, the road to heaven is narrow and the gate is narrow. It's difficult. The road of faith is living with the hope of the promises that God has given us in the midst of looking like those promises will never come true. 
That's what we looked at so far in this chapter. But even as we've seen so far in the greatest chapter of the Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, the pearly gates of eternity in heaven do not lie at the end of Easy Street. That's something, that's a quote that I came up with. I didn't borrow that from anyone. Aren't you proud of me? Right? The pearly gates of heaven do not lie at the end of Easy Street of Faith. See, I'm convinced that many of the sermons that Jesus preached, if you go back and look at the sermons that Jesus preached, they would be considered to be offensive and too radical for the modern day church in America today. Think about what he preached. He preached this line, take up your cross and follow me. How well do you think that, that, that flies in today's context? The upside down nature of the Sermon on the Mount is enough to cause tremors in most of our modern understanding of faith. And then he says this, if you want to be first, then you have to be last. And the last will be first in my kingdom. Everything that we are used to and work for and strive for in our daily life is turned upside down by Jesus' theology. And it goes on and on and on. The truth of the matter is, following Christ is not easy street. The pearly gates don't lie at the end of easy street. It's a rough road. It's a narrow Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. All right. <laughs> I just have to yammer on like that, right? Following Jesus is not easy street. And the narrow road to heaven, many may not travel because the road is difficult. You see, the apostle Paul knew this from personal experience. By the time he writes to the church at Rome, he's gone through some persecution of his own. And he went from being popular with all the Pharisees and all of the elites to being hated by them because of one decision that he made. And that was, I will follow Christ. Why did he do this? Why does he tell us in the end of the greatest chapter in the Bible? Why does he tell us that through the suffering, through the trouble, rest assured that victory is already yours? That's what the, 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 the theme of this last segment of Romans chapter 8 is this, is that victory is already in hand. You may be thinking you're losing. You may be thinking that you're being squandered, but victory is already at hand. There were times on his own journey when he had to stop and wonder himself, is this what winning really looks like? I thought I joined the winning side. Jesus said, join me and you'll find the path to victory. And I've joined you and all I've found is the path to prison. Join me and I'll give you eternal life. And I'll, your yoke will be easy and your burden will be light. But since I've followed you, what I found is lashes on my back. People hunting me down, wanting me dead. But he writes here in Romans chapter 8, in the center of political and military power, where it was probably scarier to be a Christian than anywhere else in the world at that time, looming large was the shadow of the Colosseum where Christians died every day. He writes to the Romans and says, we've already won. In Christ, the victory is already secure. I often wonder sometimes when I think about the way things go in my life and the way things go in the world around us and I hear what happens in other parts of the world where and things like that. I wonder, is this what winning is really supposed to look like? Is this really what God intended to look like in winning? And so this morning I want to look at five questions that we need to ask to assess whether we're on the winning side. Because yes, this is what winning looks like. We're just not used to seeing real victory. We're used to seeing victory makes us jump up and scream right away. You know, when we think of victory, we think of sports games, and that's going to be at the end of four quarters or two halves or nine innings or something like that. We're, if we last long enough, we're going to see an outcome. 
But you see, the victory that we have is a victory that is eternal. And it happens in God's timing. So let's look at a couple of things. Number one, um, do I really understand just what God has done? And do I really understand just what God is doing? Many of you may say, yeah, I understand. I know what God's done. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven and he is turning all things to good and he's doing all that. I've, I've learned all that. Do I really understand what God has done and what God is doing? Look at verse number 31. It says, what then are we to say about these things? What are the, these things that Paul is talking about? So to get a, a better understanding of what we're supposed to say about what things, we got to know what things we're talking about and that's in verse 28 and 29. So that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be called, uh, to, to be uh, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Verse 29 says that God foreknew and he predestined us. Now, for a lot of people, these are theological landmine words, okay, that gets us wrapped into all of these theological discuss- discussions about God's grace and who can be saved and who should be saved and, and all that type of stuff. I want to stay on task here and understand what God is saying here through this. What is his purpose? Is that God is sovereign and he has a plan and his plan will not be thwarted. If God has planned to take you to heaven, if God has planned to give you victory, then victory is sure. We can rest in that. He promised to conform us to the image of his son, the verse says, that we will be made like Christ. That means that the life we live is meant to shape us and mold us like jars of clay into the image of Jesus Christ. He also called us to himself. Meaning that in the midst of all the, all the things that were going on in the world, the God of the universe has called out to us through Jesus to come to him, all who are weary, all who are burdened, all who are tired, and God will give us rest. He calls to us through the gospel. And then he justifies us, taking away our sin and making us acceptable and perfect in his sight. And then he also has glorified us, the text says. This means, what it means to be glorified means, I have all sin eradicated. All sin in my life, past, present, and future, is gone. All of the weight, all of the scars, all of its effects. That glorification is going to become reality when we get to heaven. But that glorification today has already been done in him. Do we still carry the weight and the scars of our sin? Absolutely. But God doesn't look at those things and say, that stands between you and me. And one day in heaven, all of those things are taken away when we are glorified in him. Paul is saying, here's the picture of what lies in front of every believer. It's like the old hymn that says, there is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the skies, no more tears to dim the eyes, and forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. It's been said before that the more people that die and go to heaven, the sweeter heaven becomes and a little less sweet earth becomes. We start to look forward to that day when that glorification takes place. He offers all of that picture, justified, glorified, all of that's in the past tense. He predestined, called, justified, glorified, like it's already happened. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you would say right now that your current state in life is literally heaven on earth? I just don't think it could get any better than this, Pastor. I'm waking up with back aches every day, headaches, Carrying around a little too much. I'm just, I'm, I'm personalizing everything because this is my life right now. It's not heaven on earth right now. So is Paul lying to us? What he is saying is that God has promised it and God's promises are as sure as though they've already had taken place. When God makes a promise, you can go ahead and write it down that he's going to come through. When God makes a promise, you can center your hope around the fact it's already a done deal. 
I love when people say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And that's wrong. Whether I believe what God said or not doesn't matter a hill of beans to whether it's already settled. God said it, and that settles it. God has said victory is for his children, and that settles it. It's not a question of whether it's going to happen. It's a done deal. So we must never lose sight of what God has done and is doing and is going to do for us. And the second thing is, if God is for me, then why should I fear anyone who is against me? Look at the, look at, look at the last part of verse number 31. What shall I say to these things? If God is for, for us, then who can be against us? If God is for me, then who can be against me? And I believe this verse, along with Romans chapter 20, uh, Romans 8, 28, and also along with uh, Philippians 4, 13, are often misapplied in their meaning. All right, because Philippians 4, 13 says, I am able to do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? And also Romans, 20, Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things together for good. Now, does that mean that I should take the truth of those verses and go up to the top of like the big blue building here in Lexington and jump off of it and expect for God to defy the laws of physics and gravity and reason and allow me to fly. Because after all, God, it says, I will be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, it's in the context of contentment. See, all of that in Philippians 4.13 and, and in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the working all things together for good speaks of the fact that as we endure living under the weight of sin and gravity and all those things, while we live under those restrictions, God is working all of those things together and God will give us the strength to live and thrive in the midst of all of those for his glory. Doesn't mean that I can go and I can defy nature and I can speak miracles into existence just because I want to. It means I can walk this road because God is going to give me the spirit or God is going to give me the strength to do it. You see, this verse is saying that nothing can rise to oppose us in him can defeat the good purposes of God for me, is what it means. See, Paul, in, in, in Philippians 4.13, he was writing from prison. So if he's writing from prison, he writes Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm just going to go over here real quick and just like burst these, burst these bars open. I'm going to walk right on out, so I'll talk to you guys on the other side. No, that's not what he was saying. He's saying, I can endure whatever I'm meant to endure because nothing that I endure is ever going to stand in the way and thwart what God is accomplishing in me right now. So whatever it is you may be facing right now, understand that even though God may not have wanted that to take place in your life because he lives with this permissive will and we are living in a broken and falling world and understand this, this isn't God's plan for us. This wasn't God's plan for sin. That came because Adam and Eve were given free will and they sinned. So he's going to redeem even the things that we broke, even the things he didn't want to do. He's going to use those things and redeem those for his glory and for your good. He can take even the worst things and use those to shape you into the image of his son. All things, the good and the bad, God is going to work together. God in his immeasurable power and his sovereign ability can take even the opposition that comes our way. If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, there's a lot of people that can be against us. But if God is for us, that supersedes and overrides all of that. God in his power can take even the opposition that comes our way and put it into submission to work for his holy purpose. Not only can he, but he promised absolutely and positively that he will. As surely as if it already has happened. And you may be here thinking, yeah, right. That's right. I'll tell you what can be against me. I'll try a horrible boss. 
Try a nagging spouse or a cheating spouse. I can tell you who can be against me. There's a lot of people who can be against me. My teenage kids right now are against me. I can tell you who can be against me. There's a lot of people who can get, be against me, Pastor. I don't know if I believe this verse. And to that, God says, and your problem is? All those people against you? What's your problem? Because I'm for you. Remember, all the people against you, God is still for you. What matters is not who is against you. What matters is who is for you. We spend our lives so many times just looking at all these people that are against us, the haters, the people that, that post dumb comments on Twitter or they talk about your faith or they talk about how little you are or ugly you are, or dumb you are, or whatever it may be. And we always hear the voices of the ones who are against us. We hear the voice of the accuser. But I'm telling you, church, there is one who is for you, and he is more for you than anyone can be against you. Verse 32 tells us this. And, and I love what Pastor J.D. Greer said. He said, the way to remove fear from your life is not to remove all danger. The way to remove shame from your life is not to remove all of the people who are speaking shame into your life. It's to believe the promises of a God who is bigger and stronger than all the dangers and all of the accusers. We believe the words that God has given us. Verse 32 tells us just how much God is for us. Look what it says. He said, he didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So how will he not also with him grant us everything? When it comes to God proving that he's willing to do for us, he held nothing back. When it comes to God proving what he did for us, he held nothing back. Remember Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were sinners, what? Christ died for us. He proved to us how much he loves us, how much he cares for us, and how much he's for us because he gave up the treasure of heaven. So the question is, where does my confidence come from? Does it come from having all of my bases covered? Does it come from having all of the resources that I want at my disposal? Does it come from having the bigger weapon than the enemy? Does it come from having the right politicians in office leading my government? No, the confidence in my life that comes to my life and speaks to my soul is the confidence that I have in him and in him alone, the one who was crucified, the one who rose again, and the one who is coming again for me and for you. That's the confidence that we have. In Jesus, we have everything. And that means that when all else fails and it seems like there's nothing else to hold on to, remember this one truth. And I love what Psalm chapter 56 says. The last part of chapter 56, verse nine says, this I know, God is for me. For some of you, that may need to become the new mantra of your life. This I know, through everything else that I don't know, this one thing I do know, God is for me. And this is what leads to the third question to evaluate when asking what winning really looks like. Winning looks like this. It looks like focusing on what God has done. Winning looks like this, focusing on the fact that God is for me. And number three, if God held nothing back and Jesus gave his all for me, should I really ever worry about my other needs? Because if he's covered my most important need, won't he cover my lesser needs as well? What does God say about how much God values us at how much it costs him to purchase us? Paul tells us what God's grace costs. It means that he didn't spare his own son. To put it another way, think about this. He emptied heaven of its greatest treasure to meet our greatest need. Jesus, the darling of heaven, the treasure of heaven, came down to earth, emptied himself out of heaven to purchase our freedom and to purchase our pardon. And if this is true, and it is, do we really have a reason to stress over whether or not God will meet our lesser needs, will rise above our fears, will bring us above our doubts? 
See, God sacrificed Jesus to redeem us, and that should change how we perceive what God is going to do with us. How many times does it cross your mind every day? I am loved by God, he is for me, and he gave everything for me. When you take that in and when you consider that, it should make us be like, I don't deserve it. Why would God think that I'm worth it? That he would give his own son in my rebellion and in my sin to die on a cross that he didn't deserve, to leave heaven, perfection, to come to sinful earth and subject himself to all of that. I don't deserve it. And we start thinking, man, how bad do I have it? We begin to think, man, how good do I have it in Jesus? That he would give all of that so that I could have him. See, God sacrificed Jesus to redeem us. And that should change how we perceive everything we look at. In other words, why would God put that kind of investment into us and then not supply what we need to accomplish his will? Why would God give us Jesus and then not give us what we need to survive? Why would he do that? Why would he supply the Holy Spirit but withhold wisdom from your life and in your decisions? Why would he rescue you from sin but give you no help in your marriage? Why would he bankrupt heaven to give you the riches of his grace and not supply your needs here on earth? The truth is God is for us and God has given us so much. He continues to give us every single day. God is for us. Be assured in that. God has got us. We have to be assured in that and confident and rest assured. And the fourth thing is this. If God's mercy has assured me of his approval, then why should I stress over the disapproval of other people? This is for you people pleasers. And when I say you, I mean me. I got one at you and three pointed back at me. Any other people pleasers in here? I just want to let you know I'm going to be upset if you don't raise your hand. Yeah, there you go. All right. People pleasers unite over this one. If God has already shown me his approval, then why should I ever stress over the disapproval of others? Look at Romans 8, 33. It says, who can bring accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He's the one, who's the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. And he's also at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. These verses kind of bring the mental image to my mind of a courtroom, right? When you're hearing accusation and condemnation, it's kind of like you picture yourself sitting there as a defendant, sitting in front of a prosecutor and a judge in a courtroom. And the prosecutor is coming in, laying all these charges before you. And it's up to the judge to decide whether you're innocent or guilty. And then the past sentence, the problem is that in this courtroom, the prosecutor is Satan and Jesus is the judge. And Jesus stands up and says, you know what? He is innocent of all of these charges. And even Satan goes, but, but, but judge, your honor, we've got video. We've got it all on tape. We've got every bit of proof. And he said, yeah, but you missed one thing. My blood is covering his sin. He says, who is it that condemns? Who is it that can accuse? Because no one can stand to accuse us when the judge and jury and executioner has already pardoned us. Did you get that? Look at the passage again. It says, who can bring accusation against God's elect? He says, God's the one who justifies. That means God's the judge. God's the one who makes the rules. And his rule is this. If you come to my son, you get pardoned. You can't be condemned anymore because in my son, he took all your shame. He took all your guilt. And he's the one who's going to judge. In John chapter 5, we're given this very interesting truth. Look at what it says. 
John chapter 5, verse 22 says, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. This means that the final judge of our righteousness and the only one who can pass condemnation on us is Jesus. He's the only one who has the right to do that. He's the only one qualified because he's the only one who per- who's perfect. But Jesus, as the judge, is different than any other judge on the planet. He is the judge who also stood up to take the punishment for our sins, and then he rose from the dead to give us victory over it. And he doesn't pass judgment, he passes pardon. This means that the only one who really has the right to condemn you just doesn't. You get that? That's grace. That's mercy. Of, that's the mercy of God. The only one who really has the right to condemn us and pass judgment on us doesn't pass that judgment. He passes grace and mercy and love, and he calls to us, come to me and find pardon. To put it another way, this is what winning looks like. Okay, if you're a sports fan, have you ever noticed that when your team is playing another team and it's usually always its rival, have you ever noticed it sometimes seems like the referees are in favor of the team you're playing more than the team that you're rooting for? You ever seen that happen before? You're, you're, like every, every game I watch when Kentucky is playing basketball, I like to get on Twitter and look at what people are saying and it's amazing. They always say the same thing. Well, it's hard to beat five good players and three horrible referees, I tell you what. It's always the odds stacked against you, man. You're always David going against Goliath. It doesn't even matter, right? And that's why the to the 15 seed. The odds are stacked against you. Here's what winning looks like according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Victory as a child of God is just that. It's having the best player on your team who is also the referee. This is what it's saying. There is no condemnation on us. No one can raise an accusation. No one can raise condemnation to us because Jesus is the judge anyway. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is what winning looks like. When your best teammate also happens to be the ref, there's no way you can lose. So as we move to the last question, we're going to cover this biggest portion of text here, and that's number five. If God is holding me securely than what can ever break his loving hold. If God is holding on to me securely, which he is, then how and what can ever break his loving hold? This is the answer to his initial question in verse number 31 when he says, if God's for us, who can be against us? And so he sets up some like rhetorical possibilities of what could rise against us. You know, because you're probably sitting here thinking, I'll tell you what can rise against. Bad boss, tight bank account, all these things. Let's see what Paul offers. Verse number 35 says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 35, we get this list of possible threats to our relationship and our standing in Christ. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. That nakedness there is just meaning being destitute or in poverty. All of these afflictions. What I find interesting is all of these things that are mentioned here in the book of Romans, which is kind of during the origin story of the church and the origin story of New Testament Christianity, Paul lays out some pretty dark possibilities, right? Affliction and sickness, distress, persecution, famine, poverty, danger, sword, people turning on you. All of these things. He lays these out as some rhetorical and some possibilities of what happens. And all of these possibilities are going to become reality for believers throughout history. 
Every one of those possibilities that are there become reality. And every one of those possibilities are still realities to people in some parts of the world. We may not see those as realities today. But there are people throughout the world today who still have those realities. And that's why we pray for them. That's why we, we pray for their courage and we pray for their strength, right? Verse number 36 is actually a quote from Psalm 44, which points out that God's people have always encountered opposition. Jesus backed this up in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that people would persecute and revile his disciples the same way that they did to him as well. If you look at verse 36, that phrase all day long describes the constant threat of death for a believer. And like I said, we may not totally uh, understand that today in our American context where we have freedom to worship, but in other parts of the world in 2022 still have this threat every day for being believers in Christ. So what am I supposed to hold on to in the middle of all that struggle, of all, uh, in the middle of the persecution and the famine and the sword and the poverty and the affliction, all for my faith? What am I supposed to hold on to? Because everything that screams out when you're going through that, let go of Jesus. What do I hold on to to hope in Jesus? It's found in the overwhelming and healing and sustaining love of God in Christ Jesus. That when everybody hates you for Christ, Jesus loves you. When everybody hates you because you love Christ, Jesus loves you. Do you want to know how much you're loved by Christ? And, and we say this all the time, God is love, and yes, Jesus loves me. We sing songs like that all the time. Here, here, here's this. This was an original thought that I had this week, and I don't get many of them, so I'm going to shout this one to the rooftops. God loves you more than anyone or anything on earth could ever hate you. God loves you more than anyone or anything on earth could ever hate you. And if all the, and get this too, if all the hatred on this planet were somehow combined into a ball and shot like a laser toward you and all the hatred on this planet, past, present, and future, were concentrated on you for a moment of time, all of that would still fall short. All of that hatred would still fall short of the love of God for you. All of it. If everyone on the entire planet turned its hatred completely toward you, stopped hating everyone else and turned it completely towards you, the love of God still supersedes that amount of hatred. That's how much he loves us. That's why we sing that song, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and he pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though it was stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, how strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song. If all the hatred in all the world of all time were centered on you, God's love for you is still greater. No evil in all the earth can withstand or outmatch the love of our God, and that's the source of our victory. And in verse 37, he says, No, in all of these things, affliction, distress, persecution, famine, in all of those things, in all the hatred of the world, we are more than conquerors. Are we conquerors because we work our way out of the trouble? Are we conquerors because we rise up and we fight those who are against us? No, we're conquerors. Here's why. Through him who loved us. 
for God's love for us to send Jesus to live among us and die to redeem us and to raise us and to... And then in 38, we get another list of possible threats. I mean, the threats continue. Look at verse 38. It says, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love how Paul covers the whole spectrum. Death, life, and everything in between. Height, depth, and everything in between. Things created, things present, things to come, past, present, future, all of it is covered. And then I love this too. He just throws in this, this caveat that catches everything else or any other created thing. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Do you know why that word created? And, and take that, highlight that verse, highlight that word created. Any other created thing. You know why that's important? Don't think of created things just as like, you know, the dogs and the cats and the skunks and all of those things. Any other created thing. You know why that word created there is there? It's because outside of God himself, is there anything that we see that is not created? Nothing created can ever rise above the power or the authority of the creator. That means that nothing that stands to oppose us, nothing that stands to destroy us, nothing that stands to separate us from Christ ever can when he holds us in his hand. John 10, 29 says, My father, Jesus is speaking, who has given them to me, speaking of his children, is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck or snatch them from my father's hand. This is what winning looks like. Winning looks like no matter what may come, no matter what may try to pull me away, no matter what may try to bring me down, no matter what may try to separate me from the gospel power that has redeemed me, never can. Not even me. Why? Because God loves me. And his love is stronger than all the hate. His love is stronger than all the forces of hell that try to come and rip us from him. Even in the midst of what you may feel is your greatest failure or your greatest loss, even in the midst of what seems to be the coldest and darkest night of the soul, the love of God for you holds you fast through it and assures you of victory beyond it. You are loved by Jesus Christ. You are loved by God. And as we close out this morning, we have to understand that there is nothing that can rise to destroy those who are covered by his love. And that's the question we close with this morning. Am I covered by this love? You see, while nothing can separate us from the love of God, it takes our faith to place us inside of that. God says, I will come to you. I will give you rest if you come to me, but we must come to him. Nothing can pull us from the arms of Christ, but we must crawl to those arms to be in him. Have you trusted Jesus as your savior? That's the biggest question. If you know Christ as your savior, victory is secure, victory is yours. And the question is, will you receive that love? There's only one that can deny that love. There's only one that can keep your, keep out of the hand of God, and that is the one who says no to Jesus. If you say yes to Jesus, we're in his hand, and we're secure in his victory. Those who call on the name of the Lord, saved, shall be saved. Will you receive him? If you haven't, come to him today. Say, well, how do I do that? First, you have to admit, sinner, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. And you have to believe that Jesus is bigger than those sins. 
He's bigger than those mistakes. And he paid for those sins when he died on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, he gave you the power to defeat sin in the grave by trusting in him. And if you will call on him, if you pray and say, Lord, I trust you completely. Forgive me of my sin. Take me to heaven when my life is over. Be my Lord and my Savior today. If you'll pray that, he will save you. There is no one that he will deny. There's no one that he'll turn down because he calls to everyone who is tired and broken and weary. And if that's you today, today's the day. Call on him. Just say something like this. God, just be merciful to me, a sinner. Help my unbelief and I repent of my sins and I ask you to be the Lord and Savior of my life, to take me in your hand and never let me go. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.